You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Welcome, Spot On listeners. Very exciting today. Uh, Today's episode is called, What the Heck is the Microbiome? And we're going to answer this and figure out if something that we should be addressing or worried about it or concerned about it or whatever. My gut tells me that I should be paying attention to it. If you didn't know what the microbiome is, today I brought on someone who knows a lot about us and is going to educate us, Dr. Noel Mueller. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, he's you know published over 80 articles. He is doing um, some really, really intensive research right now on the effects of the diet on your gut microbiome. So he is the person that has the answers. So with that, I want to welcome Dr. Noel Mueller to Spot On. Hi, Joan. Thank you for the invitation to be on your podcast. I know. I am so excited because, but you know, we're hearing about this all the time, about the microbiome, and I think that a lot of people are confused about it. So we're going to start from the very beginning, and, and let me quiz you. Let me see if you really are an expert, Dr. Noel. What is the microbiome? Over the last about two decades, owing to the emergence and expansion of high-throughput sequencing, we've come to realize that we are more than our own cells. We're actually our own cells and our microbial cells. So this has given us an extended view of ourselves, really, as who we are as human beings. So this high-throughput sequencing has given us a view of the microbial communities that live in us and on us. They actually live on all of our barrier surfaces, from our skin to our gut barrier. And we call this composite of the microbial communities that live in and on our bodies, the human microbiota or the human microbiome. So we have these cells in the body that we've all learned about, you know, with anatomy and physiology. But now there's this, uh, like, good, I refer to it as good bacteria, so these microbes that live on our surface and in our gut. Yeah. So our microbiome, right, contains tens of trillions of microbial cells, which constitute about 1% to 2 or 3% of our body weight. And interestingly, these microbial cells actually outnumber our own human cells and our own human genes. They outnumber our own human genes by about 100 to 1. So actually, Joan, we're more microbial than we are human, which really challenges this notion of who we are, right? And this is so fascinating. And it really hasn't been known for all that long when you said a few decades ago. This is phenomenal. So what what are these microbes or microbiome or microbiota? What does it do for us? Well, they may do a lot of things. And we're continuing to discover these through the different sequencing and integrating the data that we get from the sequencing into our large epidemiologic studies, clinical trials, and even experimental mice studies. 
So we've learned again that we're more uh, microbial than we are human cells. We've also learned that rather than being pathogenic, the majority of the bacteria that live in our microbiome are commensal or symbiotic. So they likely are supporting our health. And we've learned that through about 15 million years, our bacteria have co-evolved with us as a species, probably to support our health. And another thing that I think is important to consider when we talk about the microbiome is that unlike our genome, our own genes, which is fixed, our microbiome can be manipulated or changed by our lifestyle or our environment. So we can change these things. They're not immutable, uh, which our genome is. So what do they do for us? What do they do for us? So they pro provide us with a, a wide range of functions, including educating and training our immune system, particularly early in life, because we're seeded with our microbiome at birth. They also help to prevent the growth of harmful species. They also help to ferment energy substrates that we could not otherwise use. And they also produce vitamins and hormones that our body may rely on. Our microbiome is so important that some researchers have even proposed it should be considered as a human endocrine organ. Wow, that's really interesting. So, so it sounds like there's good bacteria and not so good bacteria. That's right. That's right. And we're still kind of narrowing the scope on what we define as good bacteria and bad bacteria because it may rely on the context in which the bacteria are living that, that may define them as being bad or good. So we think of it more as a balance and bacteria in different environments may actually serve beneficial functions or detrimental functions. So interesting, so interesting. So <clears throat> we know that they play this important role uh, you know, with your immune system, uh, so making sure that it's healthy, as you just said. Um, and we have to pay attention to it. I'm just, to me, this is absolutely fascinating because if we don't pay attention to it and we, our lifestyle isn't feeding it, quote unquote, uh, the not so good bacteria, the bad bacteria could take over. And, and how could that be harmful? Well, I think it's good to bring an example to play. So uh, when we talk about um, potential impacts that could support the growth of bad bacteria. Um, some things happen early in life that can give way to this uh, growth of bad bacteria. So things that we have studied early in life that are impacts to the development of our gut microbiome are C-section delivery, antibiotic use, formula may also impact the uh, development of the microbiome, and also early introduction to solid foods too early. Um, disrupting this early development of the microbiome may impact, again, the homeostasis that the microbiome can pro provide to the host and all those beneficial functions that I mentioned before. Can, can you explain this, the C-section? Uh, how, how does that foul thing sure. versus the regular so, vaginal delivery? Exactly. So you might be wondering, where do we get these microbes? The preponderance of evidence suggests that we get our microbes at birth during the delivery process and during a natural delivery, that would be the vaginal microbes and some of the fecal microbes that our mom might pass on to us. And so if we are not delivered vaginally, instead by C-section, we may not get that set of microbes that were intended for us at the beginning of life. Therefore, C-section delivered babies may, may be developing 
their microbiome with a different set of microbes, and they would not have the same microbes that their vaginal delivered counterparts would have. So this has been studied in observational studies, and C-section delivered babies not only have different microbiomes through at least probably the first year of life, but they also have higher risk of several immune-mediated diseases, such as allergies and asthma, and also several metabolic diseases, such as obesity. We are now looking to see whether or not we can restore the microbiome of C-section-delivered babies to that of a vaginally-delivered baby to prevent not only the microbiome dysbiosis or imbalance, but also to prevent the diseases that are associated with C-section delivery. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, I, I've given birth to two um, boys, which are now men. And so what you're saying, Dr. Noll, is that that was all worth it because they were, you know, vaginal and it's a vaginal birth. So this is the way I, I gave them something. Something good came out of that besides the baby. It, that, I, th I think that that may be the case and we're still studying that. But also what I want to say is that if you did give birth by C-section, then that's not a programmed outcome that's going to program your child for a detrimental health consequence later in life or a disease. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because if anybody was born by a C-section, it's not like, oh, my goodness, I missed this opportunity. No, because somebody could be, uh, be born as a C-section and have a healthy lifestyle, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and be better than somebody who was vaginally delivered and have a not so healthy lifestyle, right? Exactly. It's not that you're going to be doomed because you're C-section delivered. There's There are more things that you can do to uh, make up for that exposure early in life. Okay. So let's assume we're going to, let's, let's make up for it. So can you tell me uh, how you know, certain things, lifestyle, some things you can change and some things you can't change, uh, affect the microbiome. And I, I realize age does. That's something obviously we can't change. So how does age affect it? Sure. So age is one of those immutable factors, right? Non-modifiable factors that's associated with the microbiome development. In the first two to three years of life, the microbiome develops in a highly dynamic manner. And this is part of the process by which the immune system is getting educated and programmed so that it can recognize friend from foe um, in terms of microorganisms. It's training that immune system. So it's very um, dynamic and there's a lot going on during that window of life, the first two to three years of life. Later in life, uh, we also see changes in the microbiome and we're still coming to understand this. A recent study showed that in elderly populations, there are changes to the microbiome and actually greater changes in the microbiome in elderly populations was a sign of beneficial health, suggesting that their microbiome is still able to adapt to their changing uh, cell senescence and, and aging structure to support their health. So we're, we're learning that the microbiome is dynamic actually probably through life but particularly early in life and later in life. I read about antibiotics. So what, uh, tell me how, the, I know that, that obviously it kills bacteria, but it must sounds like it's going to be killing good bacteria potentially. 
Yeah, so we have um, broad spectrum antibiotics, we have narrow spectrum antibiotics, and we have antibiotics that work on different classes of the microbiome. So it really does depend on the class of antibiotics, the duration, the dose, and even the life stage during which the host is exposed to the antibiotics. We've published work showing that early life antibiotics at the very beginning of life disrupts the microbiome of the developing infant. And this disruption may last for at least one year, according to our study. And we've also found that these early life antibiotics are associated with higher risk of obesity later in life. And other studies have shown that early life antibiotics are associated with higher risk of asthma and allergies, suggesting that this impact the microbiome may, even if it were transient and the, the microbiome converges after the antibiotics are stopped, that this still may have some long-term consequence for later in life. Now, I just want to say one, one other quick thing is that once we have this adult-like microbiome after the age of three, then, micro, then, then antibiotic administration um, still does affect the microbiome, but there's probably a convergence of the majority of the microbes after about three months. Uh, so, so your microbiome does come back. However, there is the chance that some microbes out of your entire set may not completely come back. So Dr. Null, is this, is this the reason why you know, pediatricians now are really skeptical about just giving antibiotics you know, to babies and things like this? Is this part of the reason? This is definitely part of the reason. Uh, there's, there's more prudency about administration of antibiotics, particularly in kids. Uh, another reason that pediatricians and clinicians alike are skeptical about the use of antibiotics is because there's the widespread antibiotic-resistant genes that are happening and, and causing more resistance to antibiotics, which can be a, a larger problem where in the future, future generations may not respond to antibiotics the same way that we are responding to antibiotics. Okay, so let's talk about sleep. You know, we've done a whole series on sleep and, and it's amazing what sleep does. And so how does your sleep pattern affect? Similar to our bodies, which have a circadian rhythm, um, our microbiome is also thought to have this circadian rhythm where depending on the time of the day in which you were to take a sample of your microbiome, you may find different patterns. And disrupting the circadian rhythm of your microbiome may have detrimental effects to health. So there have been observational studies that have shown that shorter sleep duration and interrupted sleep are associated with lower microbiome diversity and also a lower number or relative abundance of beneficial microbes. However, these are observational studies and need to be replicated and also confirmed in more clinical trial settings, which would suggest that this might be a potentially causal association between sleep and the microbiome. Another reason to get enough Z's is because you know, the good bacteria needs to sleep, needs, needs a rested body that's rested to, you know, to be healthy. So another reason why we need to get enough and, and, and good quality sleep. I, I think that you would understand when you're underslept, often the next day, you're a little bit more hungry. That may be a response, a microbial response to the lack of sleep that you got that night. Interesting. Interesting. What about, I also read it, where you live. Now, how the heck, where, where are you, what's your zip code? How can that really have an effect in your microbiome? Yeah. So there have been studies looking at 
the geographic extremes or cultural extremes, comparing Yanomami hunter-gatherer populations from South America to the Hadza hunter-gatherer populations in rural Africa, to Europeans, to U.S. adults. And what they found was that the hunter-gatherer populations in Venezuela or in Africa had much greater diversity of the microbiome than populations in Europe or in the United States. This gave way to the hypothesis that industrialization and westernization of the diet is leading to a loss of the beneficial microbes that these other populations had in the past. And it's also worth noting that the Yadamami, for example, have a very low risk of developing non-communicable diseases such as hypertension or cardiovascular disease. And we've actually shown that unlike the U.S. in which over the lifespan, age is associated with a rise in blood pressure, in the Yanomami, their blood, blood pressure stays flat throughout their entire life. And we think that this might be uh, driven by the uh, beneficial microbes and greater diversity of the microbiome that the Yanomami hunter-gatherers have. So do, are they exposed in the environment in that, or is it their diet and what they're eating? So that's a good question. They have, again, this high level of diversity. And I got a chance to spend about two weeks down there with them to observe their lifestyles. And they, um, first of all, the, the infants are crawling around on the ground more than you would find here. Um, so they're probably getting exposed to environmental microbes more than we are. Um, they're also consuming the water in the rivers, which is clean water. Um, and then they're also consuming a diet that's very high in um, microbiota-accessible carbohydrates, um, or um, otherwise known as MACs. And these are high-fiber foods which can support the growth of the new microbes that the, the Yanomami are getting from their environment. So it's probably a combination of getting microbes from the environment and supporting the growth of the microbes with these microbiota accessible carbohydrates or prebiotic foods. Okay, let's talk about the diet and, and these uh, carbohydrate rich foods that the, uh, the the good bacteria like. So so tell us, you know, we're, all, we're always hearing about prebiotics, probiotics. So can you can you help us with this? Sure. Yeah. So prebiotics supply a complex food that is not digestible by the host. So the host, we can't digest the food without our microbes, right? And the prebiotics... Is that like a buzzword for fiber? Yeah, it's kind of a buzzword for fiber, exactly. And microbiota accessible carbohydrates are also very similar to dietary fiber, okay? So the prebiotic is meant to be metabolized by the microbiota to produce these compounds from the microbiota or metabolites that may be beneficial to the host. So examples of prebiotics, which you could get over the counter, are like inulin, or you can find prebiotics in resistant starch foods. So a resistant starch means that, that uh, your body doesn't break it down because we don't have the enzymes to break down fiber. But, but when that fiber gets down to the, uh, the gut, uh, the bacteria can digest it. But now, now it's becoming, uh, this high fiber food is, f is 
food for the good bacteria that produce these byproducts that are really, really healthy. So we have to, you know, f- we have to feed them. We have to feed the good bacteria. And it sounds like these high fiber foods are good, are, are terrific. So prebiotics is kind of like the f- high fiberish foods. So what are probiotics? So probiotics are the products that provide either a single species of bacteria or multi, multiple species of bacteria. And these are thought to provide some health benefit to us, the host. Um, so probiotics have had kind of a mixed reputation um, for a long time. Many of the historic probiotics that were on the, the shelves in your pharmacy were probiotics that were easy to grow or culture. Uh, because they were aerobic species. And just because they were easy to grow didn't mean that they had the best evidence about whether or not they were beneficial for your health. More recently, there's been an emergence of probiotics that are actually evidence-based probiotics or uh, bacterial species that have been associated with beneficial health. So either lower risk of obesity, lower risk of type 2 diabetes, lower risk of heart disease, or lower risk of immune-mediated diseases. And these probiotics, which are now starting to come out, are, have a lot of promise, I think, for um, not only our gut health, but also our metabolic health and potential immune health. So can you explain, because this is fascinating, let's, let's just go, I mean, we have over 70% of Americans are overweight. So how could these good bacteria affect your body weight? It's a good question, Joan. So there has been a lot of study about the microbiome and obesity. And there have been a lot of observational studies, which I've talked about a little bit, that have shown links between microbiome diversity and microbiome composition. So the different species that we have in our microbiome with obesity or risk of obesity. So probiotics, if someone wants to say, oh, I want I want to have a diet that has more of these healthy bacteria what what where do you get these probiotics in the diet so um i would say actually recommend to the listeners that rather than focusing right now on probiotics i think a good place to start is your own diet uh, a diet high in dietary fiber also natural uh, foods so not processed foods are best to Pro- proliferate the beneficial microbes. So staying away from those ultra processed foods and actually eating whole foods. Uh, fruits and vegetables, plants are gonna be best for growing the bacteria. Um, specific foods that are high in resistant starch or those microbiota accessible carbohydrates include oats, beans, legumes, nuts, seeds, fruits and vegetables. Um, so these are things that we've known for a long time in nutrition are beneficial. But now we're starting to see this also for the gut microbiome, which is nice to see the consistency. And maybe it will actually incentivize people to eat these foods more than they would have if they just said, oh, it's associated with my future risk of heart disease. Now we can actually see this real time response in the gut microbiome. This is absolutely fascinating. And so this is what I'm going to make. You're going to make a promise uh, in a year from now. Can you come back on and, and update us to what I you now know? I would love to, yeah. Because I feel like in a, 
in a year from now, you're going to say, remember what I told you a year ago? Now this is what we know, and this is what we should be doing. So the take-home message right now is let's get that uh, those fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds up in our diet, which, which we know we should be doing anyway. And I love the way you say it because you, you know, it's not like, oh, this is going to help reduce heart disease when you're 70. No, it's right now that could be he- affecting. You're going to feed this good bacteria that you have with all this wonderful uh, prebiotics, better known as fiber-rich foods, uh, and could have an e- enormous effect on your day-to-day health. Absolutely fascinating. I can't thank you enough, Dr. Dr. Noel Mugler, for coming on and sharing your information about the microbiome. And it is a date one year from now you are coming back on. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Joan. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?